All right. This morning, we're going to keep plugging away at um, Discipline 1, which is about the heart. We want to be men who shepherd our hearts with the Word of God so that we can meet with the God of the Word in it. And I want to explain that and just talk about that from kind of what we've done through Build so far this year. Here's what God does with the power of the gospel in a sinner when the sinner believes. Okay, the, the sinner gets transformed. Um, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. You become someone new in God's sight. That means, um, as, as Paul talks about in other places, in Ephesians 4 and in Colossians 3, you, you, ha- you have a new man, a new inner man. And that new man has been created by God. That's what Ephesians 4 says. It was created, um, uh, and it's according to God, this new man, this new person that you are. It's created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, Ephesians 4. So when God creates this new man that you are, this new person that you are in his sight, it's because it's a result of being created in holiness and in righteousness. So this new person has all kinds of qualities that are like God, has all kinds of desires that are like God. He's holy and he's righteous. And he's all about truth, the truth of his word. And the way that he does that is, is through union with Christ. So he takes you and, and he makes you one in Christ. In um, Ephesians 2, Paul is all about that. You have been united with him. You've been made alive with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. In other places, Paul says you've been crucified with Christ. So you've died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You've been made alive with Christ. You have ascended with Christ. That new man comes only through union with Jesus Christ. Okay, This is nothing that you did. This new person that you are is nothing that you did. It's everything that God does. And this new person that you become in Christ comes already equipped with everything that you need to be able to walk a life of holiness. You had nothing before that enabled you to walk in holiness of life with God. You had nothing. You couldn't. You didn't want to. Because the person you were there was completely absent of the things that God loves and desires and requires. So now in Christ you have everything that you need. One of the first things you notice when you are a new creature in Christ, um, and and for some guys it's harder to look at, and and I don't mean to draw like a line, like a, a conversion line, like you can remember night and day when you were converted. Some of you guys can remember. Some of you guys, it was more of a, conversion is not a process, but the idea of identifying where it took place can sometimes be kind of more fuzzy. Where did that take place? But the, the point is, if you look back at what you were and you look at what you are now, one of the first things that is an indicator that you are new in Christ is that you have an awareness of your sin that you never had before. Some of you knew that the, the instant God saved you. Some of you found that out over months and weeks or, or years even. 
And it's like, wow, I view my sin differently now than I ever did. See, that's evidence that you are a new creature in Christ because before you were never concerned about it. Alright, so now, you have this new... You are this new creation in Christ. Discipline one is all about you feeding that new person with the Word of God. Because the and, and that new person, that new creation that you are in Christ requires and desires God more than anything else. Requires and desires Jesus more than anything else. So you need to become a man who's going to constantly feed the new man. You now shepherd your heart, you shepherd your inner man, you feed your inner man with the Word of God so that you can see who this God is. Um, That's one of the biggest desires that comes built in this new man by God. You actually now want God. Now there's this problem in this new man. It's also a mixed condition in which there's still indwelling sin. Right? And so you also have desire for sin. So you have desire for God now that you never had before, but there's still this remaining desire for sin. The difference is is that desire for sin is no longer your master. It is a broken slave master who has been put off and put aside but has lingering effects. So, with your inner man, what must you do? Two things. Feed your new man in Christ the truth of God's word because it reveals God to you It tells you what you have in this new man condition that enables you to live a life that's pleasing to God. It fortifies you for that. It feeds all of the right things when you come to God's word. The other thing that needs to happen is that you starve sin. You starve sin. So the word of God helps you grow in your desires for God And as you pursue those things, you find your desire for sin lessening. It will never go away until you are separated from your body when you die, or at the rapture, or at resurrection. Right? Um, No, just at the rapture when you die. Because then when you have the resurrection, you've already been separated. So, um, anyway, so that's your job now. God desires this Christian life now to be a fight. Heaven won't be a fight. The resurrected condition, there won't be a fight. But God in His wisdom desired that there would be a fight right now. And so you can't wake up each day and go, why am I still... I'm so discouraged. Sin is still whacking me here and left and right. You know, you wake up every day and you say, God, I know sin is going to whack me today. Now, let's get busy And let's get my heart full of this word. Equip me so that I can be more holy with you and so that I can be fortified to fight against my sin. So I can put my sin and the deeds of the flesh off so that I can walk by the Spirit of God today. You just embrace this idea. It's going to be a fight and you're going to be the fighter and you're going to entrust your life to the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're going to rely and soak yourself in the word of God so that you are ready to walk in holiness of life today. You shepherd your heart. Guys, listen. If you do nothing, that will not happen. You will not become a holy man of God if you do 
nothing. You just won't. Try it. I mean, you don't even, I don't even have to tell you to try it. Look back on the days and the weeks of your life when you haven't done it and you tell me, are you a better man before God? You're not. You are weaker. You are frail. And your heart grows cold towards God. So get up. Finish your day. Throughout the day, expose your heart to the Word of God so that you can see the one that you have been given the strongest desire for, who is Jesus. Okay? It must be that way. That is what you need to be as a Christian. You need to be that first. I need to be that first of all before everything else. If you and I are that, the other things will come into play in life at the right time. Okay? The first thing you do is you step into your home, that's discipline too, and you just be that kind of man in your home with whoever you're living with. You just be that kind of man. For many of you, it's with your, your wife, it's with your children. You just be that kind of man. You, you be that with your roommates. You, you, if you're not married. And, and I listened to Armory last time um, talk a little bit about um, as single guys, when they used to live in the house together, they did this. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to ask him some more questions specifically. How many of you guys live with roommates, not spouses and children? Okay. Omri, what did that look like for you guys? Um, you said something about once every two weeks you guys got together. Talks more about how did you care for one another? How did you try to be that kind of man that I just talked about while living with a few other knuckleheads like yourself? Because we're all knuckleheads here. When I was living with uh, those guys, we had, it was almost like four or five people in the house. Um, and so every other week, apart from our own time at work, we all talk about uh, an hour and a half or two where we would get together and talk through what's been going on since the last time we got together. Uh, so that would involve uh, what we're learning in that word, what we were doing in our own, uh, any light stuff that came up. Uh, <coughs> Relationships, uh, issues at work, I mean, uh, things to rejoice over in those areas. Um, and we just talk through uh, We talk through sin, issues, purity, um, how uh, personal purity and hope is normal, what things we can do to improve in the same areas that we're struggling. For that, who were in relationships that look like asking tough questions about how are you caring for the woman that you're dating and want to marry? Uh, are you more concerned about her holiness than your own pleasure right now? Those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, so you actually would uh, try to have some transparency with each other in regards to sin in your life and. Um, were there ever difficult times with that? Yes. Uh, I think with guys who all have different schedules, uh, especially um, when there were people who weren't in this body specifically, it was hard to mm-hmm. make that a priority. Um, just with everybody being on the same page, agreeing that it was important that we know what's going on in each other's lives and be more to live together. That was difficult at times. But uh, I think once everybody was on the same page and agreed that it was important we got together, 
And, and now you have a much prettier roommate. <laughs> and only one. <laughs> how, did, how did that time, um, living that way as a single man with other guys, how did that um, help you for where you are now as a newly married guy? Yeah, good question. I think just... Uh, over the years that I was single and hearing uh, you need to be someone who is involved in the people's lives in your home, not just generally, but you need to know what they're reading or like you should be able to say, this is what my roommate is reading or this is what uh, the person I'm living with is struggling with, uh, this is how I pray for them. And I think just over time being a uh, Train, train myself to think that way uh, has made it more natural and carrying over. And Emily being somebody uh, who knew that long before I did uh, was helpful. And so uh, it's not new as an area guy. And uh, it looks a lot different. I mean, you know, yeah. carve out time right now and sit down and talk to things like that is more of a. Uh, a natural thing. And yeah. so, uh, I think it's already been that way. Yeah. It puts you in the trajectory and, and on the path that you wanted to be on and needed to be on when, for when you're married. Yeah. So, guys, I mean, that's that's just huge. Those of you who are single, to to practice that, to be in that practice. Number one, not just to practice like, and it really doesn't matter for the guys that you're living with, but what a blessing it is to be that kind of a brother to other guys that you live with. And um, so, I just want to encourage you to do that. Ami, what else? There were times in our house where someone, or at different times, different others, uh, had been involved in sin that was of a more serious nature mm-hmm. and I mean the guy I live with can attest to that and I think that uh, just being already in each other's lives those types of things weren't surprised uh, so we were able to care for each other more effectively in this time and uh, the kind of care that we had for each other um, the same guy that I live with all living uh, with different people now you can see the level of care that they provide for people in their small groups even and then they provide outside at home. And so I would just say it was even hmm. a training ground to uh, how to care for people in ministry. Excellent. Further away from home. Wow, that's great. That's that's excellent. And that takes us to the third discipline. You see, as you're caring for shepherding your own heart and as you're caring for the people that you live with as you are doing that, not once you've graduated from that, but as you keep doing that, you also step into the lives of people in the body and outside the body, and your life looks like one of has has integrity. Um, who you are when nobody's watching, when you're shepherding your heart, is who you are when you are caring for people in your home, is who you are when you step out of your home and go to work or go to school or uh, you know come to church. That's who you are. There's consistency. Um, you're humble before God you're honest before God you're humble before your roommates you're honest before your family and you're humble before the body and you're humble before the lost and you're honest about who you are before God and you care for them that kind of ministry right there is a ministry that God will sustain God will use he'll be pleased to bless that kind of ministry 
Uh, one where you leapfrog your heart and jump over your family to get to ministry and do stuff. I mean, that is a, that's a stick of dynamite with a short fuse with a bunch of sparks flying around. It's just a matter of time before something blows up. And unfortunately, in, in our own lifetime, we can look at far too many examples of that um, closer to home. So uh, really want to be working on that, those first three disciplines in that sense. Discipline four then kind of shifts for us, um, and I'm, if you didn't notice, I'm on the back of your notebook. Discipline four then becomes the uh, focus on the qualifications. We're pointing you towards spiritual qualifications that are in the Bible. First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Obviously those are elder qualifications and deacon qualifications. We want you to strive prayerfully before God, say, God, make me a qualified man so that I might serve your purposes in the church uh, in, in the way that you want them to. Um, this, this course, this what we're doing together does not make any man at the end of it a deacon. It doesn't make any man a, a, an elder at the end of it. Only God makes a man into something like that. But we don't want to be found um, ignorant of what he's trying to do. We don't want to be found working against what he's trying to do in men. We want to put in front of men what God would, Lord willing, love to bless to help them become godly qualified men. So we're going to talk about what it means to be a deacon later um, in build. Discipline five is on the hermeneutic. We want to be men who make sure that we are um, interpreting the Bible um, carefully, accurately. That's what the word hermeneutic means. Is It's a, a set of rules for interpreting Scripture. We want to be consistent. We want to make sure that when we're in the Old Testament and we're talking about... Uh, um, something that we see there that we're not trying to spiritualize it over as if that was written to us. Uh, we want the truth that was written to the original audience and we want it carefully thought through for what it meant for them because that's the only thing that it can mean. When you talk to somebody and what you say is what you mean to that person, you don't want somebody else five minutes later going, well, here's what I, let me, let me kind of, let me add to kind of what I thought he was saying. You'd be like, no, 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 that's, those are my words and you don't do that to my words. My words meant something to that person that I talked to. Now, if you want to benefit from them, the only way you're going to benefit from them is if you understand what I said to that person. But we don't do that with God's word. We want people to do that with our words. But so often we treat God's word that he spoke to a certain group of people at a certain time as if we can take them and kind of make them flowery for us. We want to be consistent. And that doesn't mean you're going to miss out on what God said. It means you're only going to be blessed by what God said. So we want to have a, a, a consistent hermeneutic from New Te- Old Testament through to the New Testament together. And then lastly, you're at Grace Bible Church. Um, we're trying to equip the men of Grace Bible Church. We don't. This is not a, a public ministry beyond that. Um, we, we want to help you understand what Grace Bible Church is all about. So you need to understand the vision of this church and the purpose of this church. The vision that we want to keep in, in front of us, the, the sights that we want to uh, put our sights on, uh, the glory of God and the cross of Jesus um, and the transformation of life that the Holy Spirit brings. That's the vision. And that leads us to be very active in a purpose, to build up or to, to, to draw in, to build up and to send out with the gospel. So a, a, a kind of a tripod in, in, in the vision, a tripod in the purpose that makes us very active for the gospel. All of this... Not just for you personally. You will benefit greatly, Lord willing, from this personally. This is so the church is strong. 
So the church is strong in the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this day. That is what it, we're about. We're not here primarily about me or about you specifically. We are members of a body that must go into this lost world with a gospel. And that body needs to make sure it needs to be seen as the strong body that God made it. And that means you must be the individual part that works right. Ephesians 4.16 Okay, so you focus on you. You're the only one that you can focus on primarily. You're responsible for you. But you do it so that each individual part works as it's supposed to and the body is strong and the body grows. Okay? All right. Let's pray. Let's ask God to meet with us and then we'll take some small group time this morning and uh, move on. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these men. Um, Thank you for the encouragement that it is to get up early on a Saturday morning to come here and then to see a room full of men who um, want to think about these things, want to be exposed to these things, want to grow in these things. Lord, I pray most of all this morning that you would um, encourage the men, that you would comfort them, Lord. I know even just hearing myself talk through what I just said, Lord, I, I fall far, far short of what you desire um, for a, a believing man of God. And so, Lord, we, first of all, remind ourselves of the gospel of Jesus, that you did not save us because we were trying hard, because we were inching closer and closer and closer to your pleasure. But we, you saved us only because you are a God of compassion who saves rebels who are running away from you. And you have wiped away our transgressions from your sight through the blood of your son, Jesus. You have satisfied your wrath against us. You have reconciled us. You overcame the obstacle in our relationship with you. You paid the price with your son's blood to redeem us out of the slave market of our sin. God, you have done so much for us. You have once and for all set us apart as holy in your sight through your son, And you did all of that by grace, not because we earned it, not because we merited it, not because we won your favor, but because you are gracious. And so, God, our lives will only continue to know that grace because we will continue to fall short until we die or until you return, Jesus. And so we pray today that you would help us to rest in the gospel. And, Lord, I pray that um, you would fortify us. And the way you fortify us is, is by helping us renew our minds once again about what you have done for us in this new condition we are in before you. God, let us see the equipment, the spiritual equipping you have given us to live a life that is pleasing to you. Let us not drive a wedge between the equipping that you have given to us and the work of your son Jesus at the cross, as if now we have graduated from the gospel and now we just need to have some good rules put in front of us. Lord, help us instead to with the sight of Calvary freshly imprinted and on the minds of our hearts this morning, help us to then also pick up the equipment that you have given to us and in the power of that gospel, step forward into obedience. Lord, make us into men who long to obey you, worship you and fear you, honor you with our lives. Lord, may everything that we do this morning together move towards that end. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want to uh, put before you guys is the men's conference, which is next weekend, October 26th and 27th. 
Um, that's next Friday night and Saturday. It's in um, <coughs> Northwest Phoenix at Northwest Community uh, Church. We're developing a, a, a sweet relationship with that church over there. Um, Johnny's from that church. And um, uh, it's uh, just some really great things going on there. That's the church that we uh, did the men's retreat last year with. And we decided together that we would do a, just a men's conference uh, this year. Uh, Rick Holland is going to be there speaking. Um, if you have not signed up yet, you can. Through tomorrow, it's $25. Um, after tomorrow, it's $35. So there's still time to sign up, but you want to do it before tomorrow if you haven't already. Um, it involves, uh, that pays for your meals uh, that you'll get over there, uh, and you'll get several of them Friday and, and Saturday. Um, and Rick is going to talk about, um, uh, they've got four different ones written down on what he's going to talk about. Friday night's going to be the war against your soul, the rationale for fighting against fleshly lusts. If you don't think you need to be there for that one, please talk to me. <laughs> and we'll have an intervention immediately. Number two, uh, second one, getting better with the spiritual disciplines. We're going to be talking about a lot of the same things that I'm sure we're talking about here. Thirdly, getting better at marriage, commitments of a Christ-like lover. And fourthly, getting better at church. Uh, so Rick is going to address those things. Uh, so please, uh, and if you have any need for uh, like scholarship help or something like that, or uh, difficulty just getting yourself over to the west side, don't let that hinder you. Don't let that be an obstacle. Let us know so that we can um, address that and get that taken care of and help you out, okay? Because we would love to help you with that. Um, secondly, for today, your homework is a green sheet. And I don't want you to freak out. It's going to look almost exactly like your yellow sheet. Um, but the first page of it goes on with the next eight verses of Psalm 119 and we'll work through many of the same kinds of questions that you just maybe talked about in your small group. And the back does the same thing again except with Psalm 145. We're going to talk about the attributes of God there again. We really just want to, at the beginning of the year, give you assignments that's making you, helping you um, be in God's Word to look for God. Okay, You want that just to be a natural thing, a reflexive kind of thing as you are in God's Word that you're looking for what it reveals about Him. Okay, So that's your homework. Very similar to last time. Uh, you're probably going to find most of your homework this year starting off the front page is just working through Psalm 119, thinking through um, what it says about the Word of God. Does it say anything about my heart uh, and other key things that are being revealed there? So I just want you to not panic thinking that we just put a different color on the same assignment from last time. Uh, it's a little bit different, okay? With that in mind, let's jump to Hebrews 3. Get your, uh, uh, actually Hebrews 4. We'll be in 3 and 4, but uh, let's get your um, assignment out or your uh, handout, your worksheet. There on Discipline 1, the heart. Yes. Oh, that's right. Thank you so much. Kyle, where are you, Kyle? Right there. And your your wife, uh, I'm assuming it's your wife did most of it, but... Uh, Thank you so much for the food this morning. So Kyle Frazee brought that this morning, and uh, we're so thankful. And Matt, you did as well? I did. Wow. And you did too? Dustin brought, what did you bring today? Well, me and my dad. You and your dad brought 
Excellent. Guys, thank you so much. And if you didn't notice, uh, Allie sent an email out. Uh, again, that there's a website that we're going to let you sign up for. So guys, thank you for doing that. For the, for To feed 50 guys is, is quite a, a, a challenge, and you guys are very much helping. So Kyle, Matt, Dustin, Frank, thank you so much for that. All right, discipline one, the hearts. We're going to move on again uh, this morning. Are you passionate for salvation's rest? Um, one of the first passages that jumped out to me when I started thinking about what this whole discipline one of shepherding my heart long ago was if it was Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to you know do this piercing evaluation all the way down to the inside of me able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. I, I, that, that's a verse that has been one of my favorites for ever since I've been in Christ. And so when I finally went to, to the passage to look at it, to study it, I, I found myself wanting, you have to back away from verse 12 and you have to look at where it's sitting and it just makes you jump back further and further and further to make sure you truly understand. So we're going to actually take a run at it from chapter 3 into chapter 4. Uh, this morning, and I, I hope that you'll see that the Word of God is living and active to help you judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. I hope you'll see that in its broader context that it sits in, and um, that you'll have even a greater appreciation for how God designed His Word and your heart to be in a full contact sport together. Okay? Uh, it has to happen on a daily basis. As we do that, though, let's, um, let's pray and ask God to help us as we uh, take a look at His Word. Father, once again, as we have your word open before us, we ask for your help. We don't ever want to approach it just thinking that, uh, yeah, we're going to get this. We understand this. Um, But, Lord, we want to intentionally remind ourselves of our need as we look at your word, and we want to remind ourselves that we need to humble ourselves under your word uh, so that we sit under it, so that it can speak to us and shape us Um, And so that we don't foolishly and arrogantly put ourselves above your word, trying to press it and shape it in the directions we want it to go. So God, we humble ourselves here. We want you to help us to see the the power of your word to help us judge the thoughts and the intentions of our heart and how that fits into the greater context of the salvation rest you have provided us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Bill directs us to focus on the heart. That's what we're here, your, your inner man. Uh, we're familiar with this verse, Hebrews 4.12, uh, but we can't miss this greater context that it sits in. Um, what I want to do first is just point out a couple of things here at the, in, in the introduction, and then we'll talk about what the passage is all about. But you see in verse um, 11 of Hebrews 4, let us be diligent. Okay, that that's the main command that leads the section off. Um, that is a command. That is a call to you to keep your foot on the accelerator. Keep pushing all of the time in your Christian life. There is no cruise control in the Christian life. You are called. We are commanded to keep our foot on the gas, spiritually speaking. And this passage this morning is going to call us to wake up if we've taken our foot off of the gas, if we've hit the cruise control. Um, We need the attitude that is found here in Hebrews 4.11. Um, 
Our passage leads us to be accelerating always, um, to be passionate for something that we may not talk a whole lot about as Christians, and that is to talk about our salvation in regards to rest. That we need to be passionate for God's rest that he provides in Jesus. It's, it's a big sense of rest, uh, because salvation is big. God's salvation is big. How big is it? It's big enough to be talked about in past tense, present tense, and future tense. God saved you in the past. God is saving you now. And God will save you from the wrath to come. That's the way the New Testament, that's the way the scriptures reveal God's salvation. Um, and But because we talk about salvation in the present tense, it does not call question on whether or not he saved you in the past. And the fact that he's going to save you yet in the future does not call the, into question your salvation presently or in the past. He chooses to reveal his salvation simply, and you just need to put your mind around this and grab it and accept it and receive it humbly. He just describes his salvation as past, present, and future. The rest that you receive in Jesus Christ, spiritually speaking, can be spoken of in the past and in the present and something yet in the future. And this says to keep accelerating for it and in it and from it. Okay? Christians have entered the rest that Jesus provides. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. For we have believed, enter that rest. Fact. You've entered that rest. Okay? Look at verse 11 of chapter 4. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. Well, wait a minute. I just thought you said we believe we entered that rest. So what is it? Have I entered that rest through belief or am I to diligently enter into that rest? And the answer from God is yes. yes. And it's not because it's questionable whether or not your belief helps you to get into that rest already. This is the way God talks about his salvation. Let your mind be conformed to scripture. Don't try to conform God's words to what you think rest should be like. And what about in the future? Well, how about Revelation 14, verse 13? Then I looked and behold a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a... That's not the right one. Is it? Oh, that's verse 14. That's why. <laughs> One verse before that. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Okay, so these are believers who have died. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. There is a rest that is yet to come when you die. Okay? You have entered the rest. Be diligent to enter the rest. And you will have rest in the future. Okay? This is a big, big rest. So, be diligent to enter that rest. Here's what I want us to be thinking about. Guys, how have you been doing as of late? In terms of being diligent. What's the evidence, if you were just to look back even in your life over the last week, what's the evidence in your life from the last week that you've been, you've been diligent about this? Are you passionate for God's salvation rest that, yes, you have, that, yes, you are experiencing, and that, yes, you will receive? Are you passionate? Are you being diligent? 
Are you zealous for it? Does it even matter? This was so important for the recipients of this letter, um, the epistle of the Hebrews. Uh, They are Hebrew Christians. They were Jews who now believe in Messiah Jesus. And no doubt, as in any church, any gathering, there are some who are genuinely saved and there are some who are not in that mix. Right? In Grace Bible Church, there are some genuinely saved and there are some who are not. It's possible even in a group this size there are some genuinely genuinely saved and some who are not. This is so important for them to receive. These believers left Judaism to follow Messiah Jesus. They heard his words, so to speak, in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I'm gentle, humble in heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. They heard that. But when they started to get persecuted by their fellow Jews for leaving Judaism, it caused them to take their foot off the gas. It caused them, evidently, to not be diligent anymore. Lots of things will do that to you in life, and persecution and suffering is one of those things. You may be going hard, and all of a sudden get hit with something in persecution and may, you'll take your foot like what? and the next thing you know you're coasting coming to a, a halt and they don't even realize the danger that that poses for them and I think we don't realize the danger it poses for us when we're not constantly thinking about driving and pushing the accelerator cruise control is a terrible thing in your driving all you have to do is take it it's not a terrible thing it's a blessing to have but take it off and as you're driving in traffic and watch how hard it is for you in your car to maintain the speed that you're supposed to be going and that's not even comparable to what the writer of Hebrews is saying here about the Christian life there's only one thing you're supposed to be doing in the Christian life and that is ever accelerating but there's this Temptation all the time to be distracted. And, oh, what am I doing? Oh, I'm not, I'm not going the speed I'm supposed to. That's very analogous to the Christian life. And they have been taking their foot off of the accelerator because they've been persecuted for no longer being Jews in the sense that they used to be. And this kind of thing has happened before, as you're going to see. The writer of Hebrews here is, is going to show you that this has happened over and over prior to the coming of Christ. God's people in the past, they have always been tempted to not pursue God's great salvation and the rest that he has for them. They're always tempted to not pursue it with diligence, to not pursue it with zeal and passion. And the writer of Hebrews says, this cannot happen to you believers that I'm writing to. That's the concern of the writer of Hebrews. History cannot be allowed to repeat itself with this group that he's writing to. And so, in Hebrews 4.11 to 13, we discover three passions of the Christian who diligently shepherds his heart into salvation's rest. Okay, Three passions that you must have as one who diligently shepherds your heart. Number one, are you passionate first to spend yourself? To spend yourself to enter the rest that comes from God. That's verse 11. Let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Now, as we parachute into verse 11, we're struck immediately with this command, let us be diligent. That's what I mean by spend yourself. Be diligent. Spend yourself. 
This means this command is nothing accidental. He's not looking for something reflexive to take place. Rather, uh, they are to be especially conscientious about entering that rest. They are to be very intentional. Um, Action is to be undertaken. Uh, They are to be concerned to discharge an obligation to enter that rest. They They are to be zealous. They are to be eager, diligent, thoughtful. They are to take pains to achieve the entering of that rest. But not just any rest. Look what he says in verse 11. Let us be diligent to enter what? That rest. What does that mean? He's already what? He's already talked about this rest. It's not just any rest. It is that rest that I've been talking about. And because verse 11 starts with a therefore, that's another tip off that we have to back up. We have to back up to get the sense of why he is saying, therefore, enter into that rest through diligence. All right, so this rest is a very big rest in the mind of the writer of Hebrews. Okay, he's not talking about a little spiritual cat nap here, a little power nap. Um, this is what God has always had in mind for his people all throughout redemptive history. And to help his people understand more clearly in the past the big rest that God is after, salvation rest, God gave to his people in the Old Testament, the Jews, he gave to them a bunch of smaller rests along the way that would help them think about the more important, bigger, spiritual rest that salvation was and is. It's actually a very merciful thing for God to do. It's like a dad coming to his child and saying, you know what, my heart for you is that you would actually be able to ride a bicycle someday. But you know what, here's a tricycle. It's, it's a step towards the ultimate goal. And the rest, the, the cycles of smaller rest that Israel was given was, was, was something really gracious of God to do. Something tangible for them to grab a hold of and say, oh, these are not an end in and of themselves. They are a means to something greater that he wants me to see. Now what I want to do is I want to back up and I actually want to read chapter 3 and then into chapter 4. Will you guys follow along carefully? Therefore, chapter 3, verse 1. Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all of his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has much more honor than the house. So he's going to contrast his son Jesus with Moses. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God's voice, your hearts. As when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart. They do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You see, that was a problem in the wilderness, was it not? 
So he's illustrating that. This is what happened under Moses. Verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another uh, day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did it not uh, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter that rest because of unbelief. <coughs> Chapter four. Therefore, let us fear. If while promises, a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now he's going to go and talk about God's work that God did at creation. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter that rest because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now what he's doing there is he's quoting Psalm 95, which is David, who's the king over Israel, who's in the land, in the capital city of the Jews, and he's quoting this about the wilderness that happened way in the past. And so David's quoting it concerned in his day. Look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. What is he telling us about God resting from his creative work? It was to be an example for us of how we would rest from trying to work ourselves into salvation. We need to enter that kind of rest where we're going to only believe and not try to work for salvation. Therefore, verse 11, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Now, Israel was given a whole cycle of smaller rests. They had a weekly Sabbath, a day of rest. Every seventh year, there was to be a land Sabbath, rest for the land. And every 50th year, there was to be another rest for the nation. That was the year of Jubilee. So Israel possessed these smaller rests, and they possessed them when? When were they theirs? At the mountain in the wilderness, at Sinai. When they received the law from Moses. So then, notice the concern of the writer of Hebrews in verses 7 to 11 in chapter 3. He's talking about what happened with Moses, right? Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Down to verse 11, God says, I, I, I'm angry with these. 
They do not uh, know my ways. I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Uh, time out. They have it, don't they? In the wilderness, Israel had a whole series of cycles of Sabbath rests. So what, is, what rest then is God concerned about that they might not enter into? It must not be the Sabbath day rest because they already have it. And it must not be the seventh year rest because they already have it. And it must not be the 50th year rest, even though they haven't been in the wilderness or have even been a people redeemed out by 50 years. They, they possess that commandment. Rather, it's not any of those rests that God is concerned about with the people in, in the wilderness, but rather it is his greater salvation rest that all of those smaller rests were to point to, to help them see their need for. Later, entering the promised land was to even be another kind of rest that was to make them think beyond that rest to the greater rest of God in salvation. Did you see that in verse 8 of chapter 4? If Joshua had given them rest, and you can read through Joshua and look for the word rest, and, and many times it's spoken there of, of uh, in the land experience rest. So, those smaller rests are not the concern of God with the people of God in the wilderness. But notice what the writer of Hebrews says in verses 6 to 8 of chapter 4. Since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today. Saying through David, after so long a time, just as been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. What's going on here? That Psalm 95, the writer of Hebrews is attributing Psalm 95 to David, which was written long, 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 long after those smaller rests were given in the wilderness. It was written long after Israel entered that smaller rest of the promised land. And Psalm 95 is concerned once again that the people in the day of Psalm 95, in David's day, that they might be missing that bigger salvation rest of God again. So you see what's developing here? There is a pattern developing in the people of God. His big salvation rest that he offers, it seems to be in perpetual danger of being missed by those that he calls to himself. Even though Israel had the cycles of rest in Mosaic Law, even though they had some kind of rest with Joshua as they entered the Promised Land, there was still a concern, even in David's day, that salvation's rest was going to be missed. Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his own works, as God did from his you see, it's a rest that's marked by the abandonment of good works for the purpose of trying to establish self-righteousness before God. You can have the Sabbath day rest. You can have the seventh year rest. You can enter into the promised land and have that rest. And you can have the 50th year of jubilee rest and still be laboring in your heart to establish your own righteousness before God. And that is what David was concerned about. That's what was, God was concerned about back in the wilderness. It's that bigger rest that is now in the mind of the writer of Hebrews in verse 11. It is that rest that they are to be diligent to enter. For him, in his day, as a writer of Hebrews to, uh, to these Hebrews in the first century, 
he has now the same concern that David had, that Moses had. His readers, these Christians, the persecuted church, they're in danger of missing the greater rest of salvation, especially if they are tempted to go back to Judaism, which was a religion of establishing your own self-righteousness through good works. The perpetual danger in the church in any age since has been this. The continuing danger is that we will coast or that we will rely on our own self-righteousness. When God has established that his great salvation rest requires believers to spend themselves. Listen, God's salvation is such that he just designed it this way, that the people who have it look like runners, men who run, not people who coast. God just designed salvation to look that way, not because you have to run to get it, but once you are in it, you're a runner. That's just the way he designed it. And that's the rest. It's interesting. Be diligent to enter that rest. Labor to enter rest. So let's allow the context of Hebrews here to inform our idea of what it means to spend yourself. It means that you first, if you're going to spend yourself to know this this rest, you need to spend yourself to know what Christ accomplished for you. Hebrews 1, verse 3. If you're going to enter this rest, you need to spend yourself to know what Christ accomplished for you. Spend yourself to know what Christ accomplished. He's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He made purification for your sins. If you're going to spend yourself to know that rest, that salvation rest from God, you need to know this about Jesus towards you. Chapter 2, verse 9. If you're going to spend yourself to know this rest, you need to spend yourself to know that Christ did this in chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see him who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He tasted death for you. You need to know that. Spend yourself to know that about Jesus so that you can be sure that you are diligent to enter into the rest. Chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had power of the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Through his flesh and his blood, death has been rendered powerless for you. Spend yourself to know these things. Um, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to make satisfaction for the sins of the people, to satisfy God's wrath. Know this. You need to know these things. If you're going to be diligent to enter into that rest, you need to spend yourself to know these things. You also need to spend yourself then entrusting your life to Christ and his work at the cross. Not just to know it, but to entrust yourself to it. Not just to know Christ, but to entrust yourself to him. Biblical salvation is all about you and me diligently entrusting ourselves to gospel propositions, 
gospel truths, gospel realities that are outside of you and outside of me. So this is not a diligence at all that springs from uncertainty. You know, sometimes you you run or you are diligent because you're uncertain of the status of what you are. That's not what this diligence is. This is not a diligence um, that is marked by uncertainty, but rather it is a diligence that actually springs from the certainty of salvation. And that may seem weird to you. If it's certain, shouldn't we just chill? Coast? And the answer to that is no. God thinks just the opposite of that. I mean, we wouldn't have written it this way. We would not have designed salvation to be this way. But God did. That salvation is certain. And run! Run! Run from that certainty. Not run from it like you're trying to get away from it, but out of that certainty, run! This is taught in other places. How about Philippians 2, verse 13? I'm going to read that one first because that one makes sense to us first. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you, right? If God's at work in you, then what do you need to do? This is not enough. Don't I just kind of kick back? No, because God is at work in you, you get to work. Not because it's uncertain what God did towards you. It's very certain what God did towards you. But his design, again, this is just maybe wrap your brain around this and just accept it. You work now in Christ, not because it's uncertain what God did for you, but because it is certain what God did for you. You are his workmanship in Christ. He created these good works for you. That you would walk in them. Not so that you would coast, but that you would be obedient. Now there's a lot here in this first point. There's, there's nothing accidental about spending yourselves. You don't wake up and all of a sudden go, whoops, I didn't even know it, but I was being diligent. Right? This doesn't just accidentally, automatically happen. You actually have to think about it. Oh yeah, today, when was the last time you were walking down the hall and, and next thing you know, you noticed you were running? It doesn't, you don't just find yourself doing that. You have to plan to do it. We are to be especially conscientious, intentional in our zeal to enter the great salvation rest that has already been achieved for us by Jesus Christ. And the question, guys, is, is that your passion? Let us be diligent. Are you passionate to spend yourself in entering the rest that God has and that God will provide for you yet to come? As you look back on your life, did you find yourself at one point in your life being more diligent, but maybe now you're not quite as diligent? Are you spending yourself to enter into that even greater future experience of salvation rest at heaven's door? And this is to be our passion. Verse 11. Why? So that no one will fall through the same example of disobedience. What's the same example of disobedience? It's everything he's been talking about. Chapter 3 It's what happened in the wilderness. You see, that still stands today for us. What does Paul write in 1 Corinthians 10? Let these things be an example to you. His whole example is the people in in the wilderness. We need that, guys. We need that. 
Do we need that because salvation is uncertain? No. We need it because salvation is certain and he designed it to be that we would be runners for him in this salvation. And you use the foil of the wilderness generation who was disobedient for him, you use that to spurn you on to make sure you don't ever be like that in the way that you live. Are you passionate to be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall? Secondly, are you passionate to search yourself? Are you you passionate to search yourself with the word of God? Verse 12. Let's talk about the big picture of this verse before we unpack it in its detail. The word for at the beginning is explanatory. Okay? Okay. This is the explanation given for why... Get this. Understand this. This is the explanation given for why um, the readers need to be diligent. Here's the short answer. Um, Because of God's word. Be diligent to enter that rest. Why? Because of God's word. Because of God's word. You must understand what God's word is all about. You need to understand what God's word does. What it is doing, whether or not you are even aware of what it is doing. And most importantly, what it is doing with your inner man. Spend yourself to enter salvation's rest because the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. That's the reason why you are diligent to enter into salvation's rest. The writer of Hebrews has already been making this very point about the the word of God in the heart. He's pointed out this relationship between divine words uh, from God and the human heart. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. The Holy Spirit says, If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Uh, He says that over and over throughout chapter 3 and chapter 4. God has intended, we've said this over and over, God has intended um, my heart and his words to collide. The problem that's unveiled here by the writer of Hebrews is this. We have this ongoing as human beings. We have this as sinful human beings. We have this ongoing propensity to make our hearts unreceptive to God's word. If you do nothing with your heart, it's not going to grow receptive of God's word. It's going to grow what? Unreceptive of God's word. But now the author has told us how effective the word of God is with our hearts to help them to stay soft. The call of the writer of Hebrews in this whole section is this. Listen, guys. If God's word is doing what it says it's doing in verse 12, searching out your inner man, if God's word is doing that, then befriend God's word. Befriend God's word. Participate with God's word. Cooperate with God's word by giving it a platform every day from which it can be most effective in its searching. Cooperate with God's word. If this is what God's word is doing, don't be found fighting against it. Be found working with it. We might say, search yourself by having the word of God search you. See yourself as the Word of God sees you. Why? 
Because entering God's salvation rest depends on it. So here's another piece of the pie of of what salvation is. And just understand this. God designed salvation to be such that you spend yourself to enter it, even though you already have, and even though you will, to spend yourself. And he has given you his word that helps you to see the condition of your heart the way you must see the condition of your inner man. The only ones who enter the fullness of salvation's rest are those who humble themselves to participate with God's word. Those men who are passionate to search themselves out by God's word. Now, that's the big idea of verse 12. Let's look at some specifics. Watch this. In the the Greek language, when you want to give a word emphasis, one of the things you do, there's a couple different places you can put it, but one of the, the first places you put it is right up front. Do you know what the first word is in the Greek here? It would be this. For living. Living. What does he want to say about God's word? It's alive. God's word is living. It's in the place of emphasis. There's something alive in this whole salvation rest matter, and it's God's word. It is living like he is a living God. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the, what kind of God? Living God. The living God has a living word. It is alive for this salvation rest. God's word lives to penetrate, to search, to discern your inner man. It lives to achieve its scrutinizing gaze of your life. To gaze down into the deepest resources, of uh, recesses of who you are. Now, something can be alive, but it can be hibernating, right? Something can be alive, but paralyzed. Something can be alive, but be in a coma. Something can be alive, but be in a cocoon, but not God's word because it is living and what? Active. God's word is energetically alive, is what he's saying. And it's energetically alive for God's intentions, for God's purposes in your heart. And then what you say next is really important. God's word is living and active. Yeah, watch out. I've used this. And those of you guys who have heard this before, forgive me, but this is the, the easiest, um, I think most vivid illustration I can, I can, that comes to my mind. Um, if you imagine yourself at a, okay, let's say it's the ASU Ducks game yesterday. Sorry. That was, was that yesterday or Friday night? Wait, what is today? Today's Saturday. It was Thursday night. Um, you're in the crowd sitting there and somebody takes out a big beach ball and blows it up. You've seen this, right? You've probably been a part of it. And a beach ball gets, um, it's very light. It's, it's, it's very soft. It's very harmless. Um, and that ball starts getting batted around the crowd, right? One person bats it energetically this way and that ball looks like it's alive. And then the next thing you know, somebody takes a whack and then it goes at a sharp angle uh, away from the trajectory it was just on. And you could say that beach ball is living and it's active. It looks that way, right? But it's soft and harmless. And that soft and harmless but living and active beach ball is subject to the will of everyone who hits it. Right, And I think that is a, a pretty good postmodern way of viewing the way that a lot of Christians view the Bible. 
This is what the word means to me. And then you're in a small group and the next guy says, and this is what it means to me. And it may look like it's moving and active and, and we're all engaged and interesting, interested, but the word of God is subject to our wills and what we think it means. Um, what would be more accurate is if somebody stood up in the crowd, pulled out a big double-edged sword sharp, I got it. No, no, nobody's going to say I got it. Right? Everybody's going to think a little differently about that. All of a sudden, all of those distinct wills don't feel quite so supreme anymore. This is sharper than any two-edged sword. Notice that he doesn't say it's a sharp sword. What does he say? Sharper than any two-edged sword. This is that small, um, smaller sword that the Roman soldiers would have used. Um, it would be the one that you would use last. You might have it in your hand as you're going with your big broadsword or with your, your shield, but it was the one you used last because it meant now, now the foe is right on you. And it was now hand-to-hand combat, and you needed that to count when you put it in them. And so it was sharp. It was known to be sharp. It, there's even some Greek literature that talked about how doctors even decided um, that they would try to use that sword for surgical procedures because it was just known to be so sharp. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, God's word is this way. And like that um, Roman uh, soldier's sword, it, it was meant for one hand. It, the, the grip was was formed to his hand. God's word, which is living and active like a sword, um, fits only one hand. It's his. It's subject to one will, his will, not yours, not mine. And when we come into the presence of God's word, we should never give the impression to ourselves or to anyone else that, that it's our wills that are supreme over God's word. Or that it's our wills that influence God's word. Rather, we should talk in our conversations together about God's word like we are handling a sharper than any two-edged sword. sword. That it is the sharpest of all instruments. And, and that it's not ours, but it's God's. It was meant for one hand, guiding it perfectly. And this is where I think young men need to be particularly careful, especially as you are in your little theological debates that you can get in. Does the word of God look like it's being treated more like a sharp two-edged sword or like a beach ball? Just just check yourself in those conversations um, and you'll find your whole theology changing as you have a conversation like, oh, wait a minute, no, guys, let's talk about it this way you'll find all of a sudden that arrogance will run out of the door and you'll be far more willing to say, you know, I don't don't really know, but I think I'd like to go figure that out carefully. The description keeps on building. It's sharp in order to penetrate deeply and accurately. It's piercing. Do you see that in verse 12? Piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. Now, there's lots of debate about what is the point of mentioning soul and spirit. And 
I think it become, become easy to lose sight of the forest because of these two trees. Um, I think the point is just simple here with soul and spirit and joints and marrow. He gives a, a spiritual dimension. He gives a physical dimension. And whether it's spiritual or physical, it's seen. God sees. The word of God lives actively with a sharpness to penetrate everything. What I can't see with my own eyes, the inward stuff of joints and marrow, God's word lives actively with sharpness to penetrate and reveal. What I can't see and get to and, and, and am able to distinguish a, a difference between soul and spirit, God's word lives actively to penetrate that and reveal that. What is hidden from my sight and my inward being is actually not hidden at all from God's word. So this is an accumulation of two examples um, to express the inward part of man that God's word has no trouble penetrating. So that means next, if that's the case, it penetrates all the way there. It is able to do something. Look at the end of verse 12. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Listen, the word of God is the great critic of your heart. Your heart needs a critic. Okay? It's legal terminology. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God does not come to you to open you up at the heart level, lay you open bare, and then wait for somebody else to draw a conclusion about you. The word of God does not come to you and pierce all the way down to parts that you can't even see and lay you open bare and say, now what do you think? The word of God judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word of God lays you open all the way to the inward recesses of who you are so that it can tell you what it sees. Okay? It judges me in the sense of discerning me and you. We are opened up so it can give its assessment, its criticism, its its rebuke, even its approval where there is good and right thinking. Here's what I know about me. Maybe you can identify. My motives and my thoughts and the intentions of my heart are so twisted and tangled up together that I can't separate what is pure motive and what is sinful motive, what is pure intention and what is sinful intention, and what is pure thought and what is sinful thought. It's a it's a tangled knot inside me in the deep labyrinth and the maze that my inner man is. Now listen, that is a much better place than what I was before. That condition, that new man, is a better condition than what I was before. And it is nothing compared to what I will be and what you will be. Do you understand this, guys? You can't look down and say, well, why, am I, why are my thoughts in so mixed? Because that's better than what it was before. God made you into something much better in this new creation in Christ. I want to keep coming back to that for you. But my thoughts and my intentions are all entangled. And I truly have trouble discerning the difference between them. When left to my own discernment, I'm lost in regards to myself. In and of myself, I cannot search myself effectively to see what's going on in me. In fact, here's what I'll be honest with you. You know what I'm predisposed to do all of the time when I evaluate me? 
I'm predisposed to affirm me. That's why I need God's word. That's why you need God's word. Because it enables me to search me and see me as it sees me. I can see myself as God's word sees me and searches me. So it is so wise for me then to participate with God's word, not neglect it, but to participate with his his word, to initiate the search every morning. Look, if this thing is going to search you anyway, go find it, open it up, and say, here I am. Participate with it. And it would be completely foolish to think that we can bluff our way out of anything, right? That we can have secrets hidden, that we can keep thoughts and motives only to ourselves and not to God. Here's the blunt reality that what I hold most secret, guys, in my own heart, the God of the Word finds with the Word of God. He sees it. Shepherd your heart. Shepherd your heart with the Word of God so that you can see what the God of the Word sees. And again, this is the explanation that is given for why you should spend yourself to enter into salvation's rest. Because God's word is already a searching word of God. It has always functioned this way. The warning existed a long time ago. Chapter 3, verse 7 to 11 was, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Guys, if you hear his voice in this, don't harden your hearts. Participate. Bring it near to your inner man. Let God search you through it. Closely related to the second passion is the third one. Are you passionate to strip yourself? To strip yourself before the God of the word. I love verse 13. Verse 12 gets all of the airplay, but verse 13 is so good, especially when taken in conjunction. You you, you see the word and there in verse 13. Um, It's meant to be a continuing thought. Strip yourself before the God of the word. Do you see how number two was written? Search yourself with the word of God. Strip yourself before the God of the word. Number three. Um, Verse 12 describes what the word of God sees in you. Verse 13 describes what the God of the word sees. Verse 12 describes how we truly are before the word of God. Verse 13 describes how we truly are before the God of the word. Are you passionate to strip yourself before the God of the Word? Listen, to be exposed before the Word of God is to be exposed before the God of the Word. You and I are are not hidden from His sight, and there is no creature hidden from His sight. Do you see that? You and I are not hidden from His sight. Rather, you and I are actually, the Word is naked. But all things are naked. Open. All things are naked. Naked before God. God is fully aware of everything in us at the heart level. Masking or disguising what we are before God is about as effective as a, as a child covering her eyes while her mommy's looking at her thinking that mommy can't see me. Thinking that God can't see you for what you truly are is like you just closing your eyes and saying because I can't see him, he can't see me. Everything, no creatures hidden from his sight, but all things, all things, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. 
laid bare to the eyes of him. Uh, it's difficult to tell what the precise meaning of that laid bare is, but at a minimum, it's parable, uh, parallel to the idea of being naked before God. Um, most likely, it's the idea of lifting up the chin. Okay, And um, the other uses of this outside of New Testament Greek is found in two places. One in sacrifice, sacrificial settings. You would take the chin of the animal and you would raise its head up and you would what? Slit its throat. You put that animal in a very vulnerable position. And all of you know this, that if you've ever wrestled or played around or been in a fight, this is a very sensitive area. Uh, my children took taekwondo and the first place they taught them that if somebody bothers you, is you go right there. <coughs> and all you have to do is put a few fingers together like that, and go, pop, they'll leave you alone. It's a very vulnerable spot. The other usage of it was in wrestling. Um, in Roman culture, Greek culture, they, they would wrestle, and if you could get your opponent held in such a position where the neck was exposed, they were done. They were done. So the idea here, I think, is, is one of vulnerable. You're vulnerable before this God. You have been laid vulnerable out before him. Now, he's not going to crush you. Why? Because he crushed his son. He's your father. He's your creator. He's your father. But he's going to make you naked before him, vulnerable before him, and you know what? It also is a um, lifting up to make eye contact. As a man, um, I need daily to know that I need to see that I am being seen by God. I need to see that I'm being seen by Him. Lifting up of the chin. And I'm being seen as a father sees me. You can look at chapter 12 and see how a father sees, right? He disciplines us so that we might be holy. I used to do this with my kids when they were young, when they were little. And, and you, I'd say to them, um, look, look at me. Why? Because I wanted, to, I, wanted to, I wanted to see them seeing me and they needed to see me seeing them. And the last thing they wanted to do was look at me. And so even when I grabbed their little heads, their face would be facing me, but their little eyes. Right? This is the idea. We are naked and laid bare in the sense that we are seen by God exactly as we truly are. Um, if this is the case, what do you do? If God has you like that, what do you do? Fight Him? Surrender. Submit. Use his word. Invite him into that process. You, lay me bare, God, and here's your word. It'll help me to see what you see. That'll help you take any masks off that you put on on a daily basis, any disguises that you put on that might um, even fool your family, your roommates, small group leaders, elders. But listen, God tossed aside every mask a long time ago. Right? Here's how we participate with him in that, by stripping yourself. Because nothing is hidden from God, 
in the end. He is the one with whom we have to do. That means that he is the one that we have to give an account to in the end. So search yourself now. That's what the word of God is doing, whether you acknowledge it or not. Search yourself now with the word of God so that you might strip yourself before the God of the word, all so that you might most effectively spend yourself for salvation's rest. Are you passionate to enter into God's rest? One of the ways you're going to tell is what you're doing with God's word in your life. Now, I said there were three passions. There's one more. There's actually four, but not in verses 11 to 13. I want to take you beyond our context now to ask you finally, are you passionate to soak yourself in the gospel? Are you passionate to soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Look, this is, this is heavy. Verses 11 through 13, it's a warning section of scripture. It's to make you go away feeling like, oh my goodness. What have I been doing? What do I need to be doing? And the writer of Hebrews knows it. And he knows under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what we need to hear next. And listen listen what he says. Verse 14, look at this. We have a great high priest. You guys have someone standing between you and God, a high priest uh, mediating between you and him. We have a great high priest. He's not just any kind of high priest. He's the one who has passed through the heavens. He's Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us be diligent. What you've confessed to believe and know and to be, let us hold fast to it. Why? We've got a mediator, a great mediator, a great high priest. He goes on to talk about him. Look at verse 15. We do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness. We have a high priest who understands your weaknesses. He knows that you, your trouble is that you're not diligent as you should be. Guys, he knows this. Jesus knows this. And he is your high priest who sympathizes with your weakness. He is not just a a holy God standing in heaven who is who is looking upon you with a rod whacking you every time he can possibly just whack you because you doggone it you're just not diligent enough he sympathizes with your weaknesses to what extent does he sympathize with your weakness he became like us he was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin And if there's anybody we need to be friends with, if there's anybody we need to have stand between us and God, it's one who became like us, who was tempted in all things like we are, but he didn't fall like we fall. Guys, he turns our eyes to Jesus. Soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus. Soak yourself in Christ. You're weak in this. I'm weak in this. You're tempted in all things in this. So am I. Look to Jesus. Depend upon Him. Verse 16. Draw on near with confidence. As one who lacks diligence, often, guys, draw near with confidence. To the throne of what? To the throne of what? Grace. Grace. Soak yourself in the grace of God. He is a God of grace. Draw near with confidence to the throne of God's undeserved favor towards you. Why? So that you might receive what? Mercy. 
mercy. God knows. Look, here's, here's what's great. Here's what you need to understand about who God is. Here's what you need to shepherd your heart with, feed your soul with. God demands of you in Christ to be diligent. He does. And he has a throne of grace where he dispenses mercy from it for those who are not diligent like they should be. He does. A throne of grace so that you'll find mercy and you'll find grace to help you. He knows you need help. He knows you need him. He knows you have need. And he's there. You cannot look at verses 11 to 13 without soaking yourself in Jesus and in his gospel and what he has accomplished for you as your high priest. You you have to put your eyes on him. If you try to be diligent to enter into God's rest and not gaze upon who Jesus Christ is, you're going to grow very weary, spiritually speaking. And you're going to grow unthankful in your heart. I find this in me all the time. If, if, if there's a place that I falter often, it's in not focusing enough on verses 14 to 16, but laboring in 11 to 13. Guys, we have to soak ourselves in this on a daily basis. It's your only hope as you seek to be diligent. Soaking yourself in 14 to 16 does not make you become passive. Do you guys understand that? There's just no passivity in the Christian life anywhere. There's just, there just isn't. Being lackadaisical, coasting, focusing on who Jesus is as a great high priest, knowing that he sympathizes with our weaknesses, knowing that he is a God of grace, that's a throne of grace, that he gives mercy, that he gives grace, that he knows that we have need. None of that motivates you to coast. It motivates you to run and to understand the kind of Savior that you're running for. Do you guys understand this? Verse 12 is an awesome verse. And uh, it is a crime that we rip it out and don't see it in verses 11 down through 16 and even chapter 3 as a whole. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, make us passionate to run and enter your salvation rest even today. Mark us out as men who need to be diligent, who need to hold fast the confession that we have confessed. Will you impress upon us once again your promises to us in your Son. Help us to set our eyes on our great high priest the one who's passed through the heavens. He's Jesus, the Son of God. He's our Savior, our friend, our Lord. Help us to set our eyes on the fact that he is not a a Savior who can't sympathize with us. He can sympathize with us. Jesus, thank you for taking on flesh so that you can sympathize with my weakness as one who is supposed to run diligently. Lord, we set our eyes on drawing near to your throne of grace. Father, help us increase our confidence in drawing near. We have no reason, I have no reason to draw near with hesitation, with uncertainty. Because your son has accomplished everything 
needed for me to even be near your throne. Let us see your throne of grace again today, Lord. Let us see um, our need to receive mercy and grace from you. Let us see that you are the God of grace, the God of mercy, the merciful one, the gracious one, the one who is willing to give help. You are our helper. You're the one who meets every need as we are diligent to pursue this rest. And oh, what a gift your word is to our inner man in all of this. We would not be able to enter your rest if we did not have your word. Thank you for the example of the Old Testament. Um, In the Old Testament of that disobedient generation in the wilderness. Thank you for even David's heart in his day to be concerned about this for his people. Thank you for the writer of Hebrews expressing the same concern. Lord, we see the need to be warned and reminded ourselves. Thank you for your word. Help us to use it even today to search our inner man so that we can strip ourselves bare before you, the God of the word. There's no safer place for us to be than there, naked and laid open bare in your sight. If we have deceived ourselves into thinking that we are safer when we hide, Lord, would you please take care of that wrong thinking even now? And let us see the the safe place is laid open before you with the word of God open. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.